Hello, and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Liu Cixin's Death's End, the third and final part of the Remembrance of Earth's Past series. This is season five, episode six, Singer, covering part five. We've previously talked about the three-eyed problem and the dark forest, and the hosts have varying levels of knowledge on this book and the series. My name is Dan, and I've read the entire series. This is Tim, and I've only read up to the current week's reading. And this is Amin, and I've only read up to the current week's reading. And along with Dan and Talia, I also co-host the Rehydrate Spoiler Cast, where people who've read the entire series spoil what's going to come for us. And you should check that out if you read the entire series or you just don't care about spoilers. And this week, we also have a special guest host, Frank, who has uh, a person who's often emails with feedback. So and he's also been a host or a, a guest on the interview series. So we're really happy to have you here, Frank. Thanks, Dan. So I am just a university student studying mathematics, and I've read the whole trilogy several times and in both languages, so Chinese and English. Really glad to join you guys. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, well, let's just jump right into the summary for this episode. So somewhere in the Orion arm of the Milky Way galaxy, an alien worker named Singer is tasked with determining the sincerity of coordinates and cleansing them. Singer notices a series of interesting communications between two worlds, one of which has already been cleansed, and Singer theorizes that it's because of the nearby slow fog. Singer takes an interest in that world that originally sent the message, even giving them a nickname of the Star Pluckers. There isn't much time for investigation as cleansing is just a routine task. Singer is about to use a mass dot to cleanse it when it's noticed that the system has blind corners and instead decides to use a two-vector foil instead as Singer flicks it and continues on singing. Changxin and AA awake from hibernation only 60 years later and are greeted by Cao Bin over a video call. Since they had asked to be awoken only in the event of a dark forest strike, they ask when the photite is expected to hit the sun, but Cao Bin tells them that the means of the tactics is instead a slip of paper. A year previous, workers aboard an advanced warning station notice an object traveling towards the solar system. They move to intercept it when they notice that it had slowed down and observe that it is about the size of a credit card with no mass, perfectly flat, and emitting gravitational waves. They notice that it seems to not interact with the world at all as it easily passes through ships and even through people. It is not until the gravitational waves stop that they realize the sinister nature of it as everything around it starts falling into the object and becomes two-dimensionalized, the same fate that will become the entire solar system. With the knowledge that escape is from the dimensional strike is impossible without the proper velocity of light speed, Chengxin and AA take a mission to visit Luoji, who is currently on Pluto, as a caretaker of Earth Civilization Museum, a repository of all the previous artifacts on Earth a project conceived by UN Secretary Say centuries ago. When they arrive, they see giant letters carved into the rock that say Earth Civilization. They meet Valaji and tell him that they are tasked with taking the artifacts and distributing them throughout space in the hopes that they might be recoverable by some civilization millions of years into the future after everything has been two-dimensionalized. As they start gathering the artifacts, they see the solar system start to be two-dimensionalized. First Neptune and Saturn, followed by Earth, Mercury, the Sun, Venus, Mars, and Jupiter, each one turned into an enormous one-by-one scale painting of the body, with each part laid flat, looking like a series of concentric circles. As they start to make their final run, Luoji says he wants to stay back on Pluto. Aboard Halo, Chengxin and AA ask him if they can keep Starry Night with him, and Luoji tells them the incredible news that not only did he help with the lightspeed research and 
that continued after the events that had caused it to get shut down. But one of the curvature propulsion drives they had made was installed on Halo, and they would be the only two people to escape the two-dimensionalization. Shocked at the revelation and ordered not to come back for Lo Ji, they try to think of a destination in the vastness of the universe. Chengxin decides to keep her date that she had made with Yuntian Ming and sets the course for DX39 or 6 or R star. We have a lot of stuff to cover. So uh, the first thing I wanted to do, because I actually wasn't sure about this myself, <laughs> uh, the chapter opens with somewhere in the vicinity of the Orion arm. And just for reference for everybody, uh, I looked up what the definition of the Orion arm is. And according to Wikipedia, it says the Orion arm is a minor spiral arm of the Milky Way galaxy that is 3,500 light years or 1,100 parsecs across and approximately 10,000 light years or 3,100 parsecs in length, containing the solar system, including Earth. So Singer and his people who are doing their work are apparently somewhere in the vicinity of the solar system. And I think they even mentioned it later that like the at the monitoring station, they see like the light speed trails. So I, we don't really have a good knowledge of like how they travel, but it presumably it's with some kind of light speed. The Singer chapter obviously is you know, a fan favorite among a lot of people, including Frank. Uh, and that's why he wanted to be on this episode in particular. And I think a lot of the interesting part comes from just like the, the same way that we had the different ch- change in perspectives um, from the Tristellarians and the first book, I think that a lot of the interest comes from there. But there's also a lot of kind of lore that happens uh, in, in that chapter. So Frank, I know you had a lot of notes you want to start talking about. So I'll I'll hand off to you, you know, to open up the discussion there. Sure. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the reasons why this chapter is so attractive is because it actually clears up a lot of the plot points that happened so far in this trilogy, the same way that the Trisolarius chapter in the first book suddenly makes a lot of the things clear mm. because you suddenly get a different perspective and you see much more details. So what this chapter does, it actually summarizes everything from the beginning of the first book until this point, that does it in a way that it uses different terminology, different vocabulary, and in a, in a very dispassionate tone while making human endeavors and human history all the more insignificant compared to the uh, cosmic picture. Structurally, it summarizes everything before, and then it's it's also a starting point for everything that that is going to happen for the remainder of this book. And uh, yeah, I wonder, you know, if everybody feels the same way about this chapter. Yeah, I really liked this part. Um, I kind of like how he just went into it and trusted the reader to kind of like follow along and like realize what was happening here and that you're seeing this from the perspective of what just seems to me to be like an, a drudge worker, an, you know, an office drone for some extraordinarily higher level, uh, you know, civilization or, you know, race of beings. Um, and you know, what their purpose exactly is, you know, you know, I guess is to maintain order in the universe at some point. You know, I know that's a very, to some degree, I know that's very vague, but the way he just basically flicks something, you know, that just snuffs out humanity, uh, you know, right. so dispassionately. Like, this is a strange, uh, like, analogy. But do you remember the very end of uh, the movie Men in Black, where I think it's like it, it like zooms out and it, sh- 
I think it was Men in Black, where it kind of like zooms out and shows that like, oh, the you this, this entire universe is just like some like little like a ball or sphere, you know, like being. It was like a cat toy or something, right? It was right on the collar. Yeah, this is almost <laughs> what it reminded me of. That oh, everything we care about is just you know there there's a race of beings out there whose concerns are so alien to ours and so you know concerned with macro scale that everything that we know and everything that we care about is just yeah like you know a speck of dust to them i thought that what was interesting about this was a contrast in the in the bureaucracy between how it was done so we spent two and a half books on earth with all these politicians and committees and everything else trying to decide what to do and here there's just one guy who's you know basically on his way to a lunch break or something, just basically <laughs> wiping out a, a solar system. And, you know, he's not checking with anyone. They're not having heated heated ethical debates about what they should do. So I, I thought that contrast was really interesting. Speaking of bureaucracy and how the hierarchy works on this seed, there's an interesting detail near the end where the elder, which is pretty much the boss, so he, he start to have this conversation with Singer and he's look he's able to look into Singer's inner thoughts. Yeah. So this this detail was only brought to my attention by by someone else writing a review online and it, it was implying a a very repressive and oppressive and implied totalitarian society where there is no freedom of thought, so to speak. Right, because presumably this this civilization has existed for a long time in the cosmos, and evolution has, you know, as we understand it, has taken its toll. And that was that was an interesting aspect. Yeah, and not only that, but like he when he when he like says he goes through the thoughts and he finds like the rumor, and he's like, well, the rumor is not so bad, but presumably like there's other like things that they find in thoughts that are bad. So yeah, it it seems like a, a common occurrence of like the the bosses or the elders kind of just like going through people's thoughts to make sure that it, they're not like uh, dissidents or that kind of thing. There's kind of a running theme throughout the, the series. Um... Like the, you know, this is it's somewhat an analogous to the Trisolarans, and when we had the, uh, it seemed like the Trisolarans were very alien to us and had very alien perspectives and very dispassionate perspectives. But we find that there are some, I forget the, I forget what we referred to him as, but oh, the precepts, yeah, the the precepts, and yeah. like and and like the one like agent among the among the Trisolarans that was uh, you know that communicated with uh, Luigi and you know seemed to be you know sympathetic to humans and all that but there seems yeah there seems to be this running theme that like the higher up your civilization is or the more you know i guess the more advanced your your civilization is the less uh prone it is to emotionality and and individualism and sort of individual like agency yeah yeah and the, the trisolarians are are they're described as communicating with light so like their thoughts are transparent because like you can't hide your thoughts that way yeah, and 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 Lucia Shin's framework here seems to you know you know and we'll go into it a little later you know I suppose with uh, Cheng Xin and how he kind of makes like a final kind of like a dig at her for her like bad emotional decision making. Lucia Shin's universe here it seems like that is a necessary precondition for survival in this universe. Eliminate individual thought and sort of individual like yeah. You know, like individual senses of maybe compassion or individual idiosyncrasy. You brought up the concept of advanced. The thing is, what's interesting is that you could argue the technological 
advancedness of acceleration. We, and we do this in real world pretty often. Or we, we could evaluate the moral advancedness or the how advanced a society is as a system, as a, as a social system or political system. We, we throw this word all the time around. Within this trilogy, it, is, it seems to me that advancedness is, is almost only defined by technological means. And the, the consequence of this is, is this dark forest state of the universe, which is quite depressing. And, and the, the, I, I guess one of the questions that the trilogy tries to answer is, is how well human society as is uh, survives or deals with, because we don't actually know whether they eventually survive or not, but how human society deals with this kind of, this kind of universe where only technological progress is progress, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And it's probably explaining my point a little clearer than, than I was, but yeah, I mean, humanity's both kind of sense of compassion in characterized by Cheng Xin making these decisions for love and, you know, thus dooming humanity through them as well as, you know, humanity's continued panicky state and constant concern for, uh, you know, like whether we're doing the ethics of what they're doing seems to be a weakness on the grander stage. I guess the question is like, would we want to live in a society like that where people can, you know, rifle through your thoughts and the, all the thoughts are transparent, where there's no really individuality in the in the world where everything is based off of just, yeah, just pure technological advancement. Being in a civilization where, yeah, like earlier, uh, I think Tim mentioned, like you could just flick a piece of dust at a, at a solar system and destroy it without even thinking, right? You know, that that's the conflict between the the, the two, not camps, but the, the, the two ideals of how the civilization is, the way, the way they, they hold themselves, right? And that's the, the conflict between Chengxin and Chengxin and her representation, her representation of humanity versus Singer or the Trislarans uh, representing the, the kind of the brutal nature of the dark forest. Right. Yeah, we hold ourselves to different standards, and those right. you know, those standards seem to be our undoing in a lot of ways. So another thing I've, I found really fascinating, I mean, like upon the first read of this, was just the the same way that the when they introduced the Trisolarians, they had kind of like different terminology about how they do things, and so I think this this uh, chapter ramped it up even more. So I made like a list of all the different terminologies uh, and kind of go through them. I know Frank, you also had some some thoughts on that kind of stuff. So uh, the first thing uh, I think, and it just kind of. Same way we kind of go through the fairy tales, like it's a little bit more clear, I think, in this one of like what the analogies are, but kind of go through them just to clear up what they might be. So the first one I think is pretty obvious, which is the mass dot, um, which is the photoid. So he uses that to um, destroy both. There, someone used a mass dot probably to destroy Traslayers, but they someone else used a mass dot to destroy the star that um, that Lord G sent the spell on. And then the the interesting one, or one of the more interesting ones to me was the slow fog, which uh, I think I'm pretty sure is the the analogy to the curvature propulsion trails or the the reduced light speed black holes or the black domain. Uh, and so the quote yep. the quote that that uh, comes in uh, says the cleansing against the dead three world star would had appeared twelve time grains ago. So the star pluggers must have realized that their own position had been revealed. The only choice was to shroud themselves in a slow fog so that they would appear to perfectly safe and then no one would bother them. Apparently the dark or the black domain prod the thing was 
the real <laughs> cosmic safety notice that that uh, Yun Ming was trying to uh, try to convey. And, and that's also a danger notice, right? The singer said, oh, we saw like a, a, a slow fog, you know, close to, not that close, but pretty clo- close enough to uh, Trisolaris. And that's why they considered to be dangerous and cleanse them so quickly. Yeah. So on top of that, you have the communication membranes that the yeah. that kind of goes on inside singer's head. And we have medium membrane, long membrane, light membrane, and short membrane. Now, you could actually map these things to the concepts that has already occurred in this in this trilogy, and it is so satisfying mm. to to kind of get it. You know, just from the context, media membering is just radio messages that Ye Wenjie used to to communicate with Trisolaris in the first place. Oh, and they they also call them primitive membrane. Yeah, also primitive. Yes. So long membrane, we know, is the gravitational wave message sent from gravity in earlier in the in death end. So that's gravitational wave. That's long membrane. And then there's a light membrane, which has been mentioned in the book, and there's there has been some confusion on, on Reddit about what light membrane actually is. So now my take on this is that it's neutrino beams because Trisolaris has offered to teach humans how to use neutrino beams to communicate at a cosmic scale. And it it fits because light here means something is not very heavy, has very little mass. There there is a possible place for confusion here because light in English also has the, uh, you know, photon meaning meaning, you know, the sun, sunlight, mm. that kind of light. To resolve this, all you need to do is you head to the original edition of the book and see what it says in another language, a language where, you know, this synonym doesn't exist. So in the original Chinese, it is quite clear that light in this context means no mass, uh, well, low mass, little um, mass. Interesting. Yeah, I had assumed that it was like light as, yeah, like, uh, light like <laughs> photoids uh, or fo- photons, and I thought that was maybe like uh, referencing uh, Loa G's plan to uh, uh, the the snow project, where he's going to use the light, the flashing lights. That's I guess that was always an assumption, but yeah, that's interesting that it's actually yeah like mass light. <laughs> yeah, I guess Loa G's plan would technically speaking be primitive membrane because he effectively uses the flickering of visible light, uh, visible beams of photons. Yeah. And visible light, as we know, is electromagnetic in nature. So that would be primitive. It's, mm. it's, my, it's my assumption. What is short membrane? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you could infer. You could infer because knowing Leo as the amateur physicist he is, and you know, I am even more amateur, but uh, medium membrane, you have electromagnetic, long membrane, gra- gravity, uh, light membrane, neutrino. Now, neutrino is associated with radioactive decay. So you could say that short membrane is also associated with radioactive, radioactive decay because the four fundamental forces that physicists define in nature. But that's pure speculation. There's no need to, you know, really get hung up on this stuff. 
Yeah, the, the quote from, the, yeah, they don't really go into it that much, but the quote that they have, it says, um, uh, it was said that even short membrane could be used to convey messages. If true, this would make the communicators akin to gods. Yeah, you have to be a super advanced civilization to be able to, able to harness that to be able to deliver. So I took that to mean closer to um, like an ESP. So like Frank was saying earlier about how they could read singer's mind. That's what I took as short membrane, that it was something not supernatural, but but much beyond anything that humans actually can do today. Or even understand, right? And this is like singer can't even understand. Right. <laughs> that, that's actually a good, yeah, I haven't thought of that before. It's very good, very interesting. So the next thing was the uh, the description of time and uh, and time structures. And we, we had also had that before with the Trisolarian chapters where they kind of describe time in a little bit different way. Um, and I know, Frank, you had done some research on the meaning of the time structures and the grains of time here. Yeah, that's just, well, this is just past time activity because it doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but what you could do is you, you, you take the numbers mentioned in this chapter, and then you you match it against the timeline of the book. So, for example, um, Singer says nine time grains separated Ye Wenzi's third message and Lordzi's spell, and thirty five time grains separates the explosion of the star that he cursed and the launch of the dual vector foil. So, you know, after some rudimentary calculations, they could even be wrong, but uh, you add up the years, the Earth years, and compare that to the time grain. You get roughly six to seven Earth years per time grain. And then after that, you have 416 structures between Earth and Trisolaris, which is 4.21 light years between us and the the closest galaxy to us. Mm. So one structural length is about one hundredth of a light year. So this is pure just... I guess some somewhat meaningless calculation of what their units actually is. I think it's, it's still super interesting. So the next thing I had was he talks a lot about uh, low entropy beings and high entropy beings, but he doesn't really. I, I don't see any description of what high entropy are uh, beings are. Um, but the quote is that low entropy entities decrease their entropy and increase their order. Um, so, and he describes humans and Trisolarians as low entropy, and also Singer as, himself as their their race is also low entropy. So, I guess anybody have more thoughts around on that one? That that was a little bit confusing to me um, as to what the actual meanings are. I mean, I know what entropy is, but I don't know how that relates to. I, I guess like low entropy beings would be like there's less chaos, right? So the there there's more order to the beings, and maybe like high entropy beings are more like a cloud of things rather than like a solidified body or something. Yeah, I'm not sure. And this confused me a bit too, because I, you know, throughout this chapter, I was trying to like divine like what their overall, this, this race's overall efforts in snuffing out, you know, other uh, civilizations was, you know, trying to achieve. So when they described that we're all low, described themselves, or at least Singer describes himself as low entropy and humans and Trisolarians as low entropy, that went against my expectation because to be low entropy sounds like less of a threat. And I, I guess it go, again goes back to, um, and maybe I need to reread this chapter and all that, but uh, I, I, was, I didn't glean too many details uh, from this chapter as to what this race of beings, uh, what their overall purpose was in basically snuffing out 
you know, uh, civilizations, you know, like what were they trying to achieve or what were they trying to maintain? Where, you know, did they just, is, is it just pure dark forest? They just see these civilizations as a threat. Therefore we have to snuff them out. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he talks about like his survival, like survival, taking a lot of the, of the energy of, you know, the, the, their thoughts like survival is just like the main thing that they're always thinking about and trying to achieve and that um he even talks about they call it the law of reversible discovery which is i think the dark forest and the, the quote there is that uh re- recall the great law of reversible discovery if you could see a low entropy world then that low entropy world could also see you it was only a matter of time thus waiting for others to complete cleansing was dangerous I think it's it's really just this is like one of the one of the millions of people who are are races that are just trying to survive, and the way they do it is to uh, extinguish other potential threats that they can. I I think low entropy. We we humans we come up with the laws of thermodynamics, and it states that the entropy of the universe increases as time goes on, and it's not reversible. So what's what's special about low entropy entities is that although the total entropy of the universe increases, locally, the low entropy entities can decrease their entropy, uh, increase their order. I I just take low entropy entities to be intelligent life Mm. uh, because things left to their own will become messier and messier, but consciousness or intelligence intelligent beings can organize, you know, these things actively. And they also, in this chapter, they also have intuition, which is something that Singer cannot fully explain. It's not fully replaceable by AI, by the main core, right? Now, this is actually quite funny because the classification of sincere and unsincere coordinates as described in this chapter, sounds like a fairly standard problem in today's machine learning world. Yeah. <laughs> Just one, it's one or zero classification and you have all these features. I guess when this book was written, machine learning didn't take off as it did in recent years. And, um, or Leo is subtly placing his opinion against the AI theory. And he thinks that there's part of the mind that cannot be replicated by computers. As for, you know, the purpose of Singer's race, I I think it's almost like their purpose is to survive. And that's it. It's like saying the meaning of life is to live. And that's it. Yeah. It's saying that the low entropy entities decrease their entropy and increase their order. This was meaning, the highest meaning, higher than enjoyment. To maintain this meaning, low entropy, low entropy entities had to continue to exist. So to exist and increase order is the highest meaning to singers, to, to singer anyway. Probably not for humans, but for singer. They, they cleanse other civilizations so that they have a better chance in the super long term to exist in the cosmos because they, they, they reduce threat to their own civilization. So that's how I read it. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. Yeah, and they, he talks a lot about like the hiding and cleansing gene, and it seems like the 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 that's like the the nature of of the dark forest. Like, there's like two outcomes that for any civilization that's going to survive is like one is going to cleanse, which is what Zinger's race does, and the other one's going to hide. 
uh, if they develop the technology to um, to put the black domain around their their world or wherever they happen to live. Um, some other terms that I I, I caught the talks the one of those things was like tomb. The another mention of tomb. There's been a, a couple of mentions of that uh, throughout the series, uh, both with the the ring and then also as a tomb island in the fairy tales. Uh, so it said. Uh, the next task was to put this now useless set of coordinates into the data bank called the tomb. This is also required by established procedure. So I don't know if this was what Yun Tianming was referencing directly. It's just interesting that that is another mention of of tomb. And and maybe Frank, you know, the is is the word tomb the same for all three meanings here, or is it different in the original Chinese? Uh, tomb means yeah, I, I do remember. It's just grave, so it's the literal meaning. Okay, so it's the, it's the same like for all three instances, like for both the fairy tales, uh, the ring, and um, and, and this tomb here. Yeah, so the ring is grave, so no confusion there. Yeah, I don't remember where Yun Tianming uses that word though. For Tomb Island, the in the fairy tales, where uh, where Prince Deepwater was. Right. Oh yeah, I think it's the same meaning. Yeah. Yeah, and then another kind of couple quick ones. Uh, so I think the star pluckers is obviously the Earth people because like yeah, when Jia uses the star to send the message, I think that was just like a, a cool nickname for us. Uh, you know, like we're we're important enough where we actually got a nickname, so that's interesting. They have the big eye, which I think is just a, a really advanced telescope, and finally the uh, dual vector foil, which is obviously the the two D attack that we will talk about shortly. Yeah, just to add on, sorry. Uh, I okay. just, I was able to check the original edition. It's the same. Okay. So they, it's the same across all three instances. Okay, interesting. One final thing I wanted to talk about uh, around the singer chapter. I mean, the, the it's only a, a fairly short chapter in this section, but it, there's so much lore and so much, uh, you know, just kind of interesting material there. But one of the things that is, I think, the most interesting um, was the, this this quote here? Um, and this is when um, Singer had his thoughts kind of uh, probed through and knows the and they talk about the war that's happening between them and the the other world. Uh, and they said, uh, "Has the home world decided to transform into two dimensions?" Singer asked. Of course, the elder already knew the question. The elder did not answer, which was also an answer. If the rumor is true, then this is a great sorrow. Singer couldn't imagine such a life. So it seems like in the cosmos here or in the, the the millions of civilizations that are out there another way to protect yourself is to transform your civilization into 2d and presumably they do this with a way to actually live in 2d i, I mean it it seems in the earlier ring chapters that like the 4d beings that go into 3d die um when they do that and presumably in it's from the, all the descriptions that happen later the worlds that Two-dimensionalized also die, but it seems like there are civilizations out there that can survive in 2D uh, as a means for protection. Yeah, until this uh, part uh, in, in the chapter, I wasn't sure whether we were dealing with a, uh, you know, whether Singer's race, whether we're dealing with a uh, a race or a civilization that was kind of also subject to the pressures of the dark forest, you know, and also, you know, maybe on equal or lesser footing with other races, or if we were like reading about a race that like a super race that was basically treating the Milky Way itself as like a, a garden it had to maintain, which, you know, or, or something, you know, something and we're responsible for like all of the dark forest strikes, um, you know, which is why I initially kind of had questions about what their purpose was. Um, but mm. this part, yeah, kind of clarifies that, that you know they too they you know they're not a like master rate you know civilization in the milky way but that you know they too are under threat 
one thing that stood out to me mm-hmm. is despite how dispassionate this chapter is, the name singer is has a has an almost romantic connotation to it. Yeah. Because and he sings classic songs. Right. <laughs> it's almost like he it's almost like he still values a bit of joy and he, he is but he is forced to adopt this brutal black forest state. Yeah, yeah, I think that's he, I, think, he, I think that's right? true. Yeah, yeah, because especially like, <laughs> when he wants to, uh, he wants to like investigate the world further, just to kind of see how it is. And the the elders like, no, just continue with your work. Yeah. So, you know, he's oppressed as well, and almost forced to be in this kind of position. Yeah, it seems like personal individuality, kind of going back to the our discussion a little earlier still exists in all of these races, you know, trisolarians to maybe a greater degree than singer's race and, you know, singer's race, maybe to even lesser degree, but it's still there as if it's almost a vestigial, like, you know, remnant of their evolution and that they probably also went through a phase that humans are going, are going through or going through, you know, where they haven't quite learned to be as dispassionate and that, you know, it, it, uh, ethics beyond pure survival still guide humanity as a uh on a, on a macro level where like once you've reached the point of singer's race it's it's only like you know pure indiv- you know like introspection or your kind of your own private thoughts to the degree that you have them that that's the only like avenue for those uh those sort of personality quirks to exist and yeah i wonder if like that's part of the reason that they are that that going through people's thoughts is like just a common thing. Like, you know, Singer doesn't seem to even think it's, I mean, he just knows it's going to happen and he accepts it. Thinking about it, it kind of reminds me of the the Borg from Star Trek where they introduce like a, a one Borg who has like individual thoughts and it kind of destroys the collective or it has the potential for destroying the collective. Uh, and, the, and the Borg are also able to read everyone else's thoughts because they're just one big collective. Uh, and so maybe that's the society there that you need in order to survive a dark forest state. Um, and that's why they are able to and do go through people's thoughts. Okay, well, let's move on to the next part here. And there's basically three big parts of this section. So we have singer part, and we have the, the introduction of the the two vector, the 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 dimensional attack, and then the escape in the then the museum. So let's talk about a little about the dimensional attack because that's also I think a very grand. Uh, piece of this book and this series another thing that's gonna be almost impossible to film but we'll see <laughs> the, the first thing i i found was just the just kind of more funny is that just humans are just stupid you know <laughs> like when they encountered the foil they're like they they put it to the ship and they like they mess with it it sort of reminded me of the hammer when they like try to hammer the the droplet back uh back last book and now they're like have this foil in front of them they don't have to do it that's like they let it like go through objects and even like they said like one it was, that's uh, some guy lets it go through his brain, <laughs> and they, the the quote is and uh, they touch it casually, allowing it to pass through their bodies. Some even let the plane pass through his eyes and brain, asking his friend to take a picture of the sight. There might be just like stupid humans on Instagram or whatever trying to take pictures of some extremely dangerous thing, but just it's just funny. <laughs> so I guess like I just want to open up the floor to discussion around the dimensional attack in general. I thought like some of the descriptions were you know some of the best of the series, just kind of artistically describing how this would happen and obviously it's like such a grand set piece and a very memorable part of the series so yeah as first-time readers maybe let's open it up to um amin and and tim to to get your thoughts on it i i I thought this was so 
being on the spoiler cast, I knew this was coming and I thought it was interesting the way it was done in terms of um, the way they made it so it could be observed happen- happening across the solar system. So rather than it just being something that's instantaneous, you know, the people on Pluto, they could kind of see the other planets being flattened. And I thought that was, I thought that was an interesting way to do it rather than it just being something that happens automatically. Um, I don't know if we'll talk about this later, but I thought that their ship having a secret light speed function that seemed a little a little hokey, um, <laughs> a little convenient. Um, again, I knew that was coming, but just the way it turned out was was strange. And then I don't know if this is the right time, but I also want to talk about why Wojit wouldn't go with them on the ship. But that we can wait on that. Yeah, let's talk about that next. But yeah, I want to make sure we cover this section first uh yeah i think the the description of like it's slowly happening across the solar system was and then there's also like point of view chapter uh point of view perspectives as well like the perspectives on the, the actual space city of like the they had the football shaped space city where like the plane was actually like coming towards it uh, and everyone's just kind of slowly falling towards it i thought that was very 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 um descriptive and it, 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 it like really painted a yeah, the painted a picture to um uh, of how that actually happened. Yeah, I think we've talked a lot about in this series how the you know the story is often a vehicle for Ushishin to uh just kind of put on display all of the cool, <laughs> you know, like scientific concepts that you know he could uh, think of, and you know it all seems to be kind of building to this grand finale here. And yeah, I'll agree with uh, I means you know some of the the circumstances that led to like. Uh, and A to, you know, like be there to like observe this, you know, is, you know, a little contrived, I think, like why were they chosen to, but it's just kind of, they're the main characters. Uh, so that's why we get this all from their perspective. But uh, yeah, I thought it was, you know, very cool and very difficult to visual. Like he, he does, you know, about as good a job as you can trying to give the reader an idea of what this looks like. As far as how he goes on to describe how, uh, you know, like, for example, like when a human, you know, gets uh, essentially two dimensionalized or any other, you know, um, object with a discernible structure, how you could still somehow like determine those structures, you know, or like see those structures, like you'd see something still human shaped, a 2D image still human shaped didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, given how he like describes how like every basically atom is you know basically on display and laid out so like why would anything any semblance of its former shape or structure you know 3d structure be like i had a hard time understanding why there would there there would be even anything recognizable there Mm -hmm. i think it would just be like a big smear you know um, right i think that's fair but yeah but yeah. i think he's taking some artistic license here um you know obviously you can't render this like completely realistically because it's still i don't think any human could you know uh right <laughs> so I, you know i think you know he's, he's he's got some artistic license here to make it look cool more than he would make it look realistic whatever realistic is but yeah it is an it, like i you know i was not expecting the uh you know at the you know start of the series or in the middle of this series to you know, <laughs> you know watch the solar system be destroyed um and this was a pretty cool way to do it 
Did you think it was going to be another fake out? Possibly. Um, yeah. You know, and at the end, in a way, there is a tiny bit of a fake out with these, you know, uh, the, the ship having, you know, like speed capability. And when I first read it, I was like, there's no way he's going to collapse the entire solar system into two dimensions. But nope, right. he did it. Uh, how about you, Frank? When you, when you first read this, what were your, your thoughts? And then I guess on subsequent reads, like, have you gleaned any more knowledge out of it? Or, you know, like, what, what are your thoughts on this this part? My initial emotional response was, sadness mostly mm. um you know it seems at this point that there's gonna there's not gonna be a good ending to this trilogy and it's gonna be a, a tragedy but on subsequent reads i was more focused on the artistic description of how everything is turned into two dimensions and eventually i was able to kind of focus on the technical aspect of it because the, the problem of turning 3D space into 2D is fairly straightforward in, in mathematics because, you know, in math, you have the space of R3 and R2. And we know that the, the cardinality, the size of the space, the number of points in these spaces, they're equal. They're infinity, but they're equal mm. infinities. So it is possible to establish a point-to-point -point mapping between the two spaces. Now, this is all abstract, but I was deeply impressed when a friend of mine a while ago sent me this link on, uh, on, on Chinese internet, and someone actually wrote a script to, to visualize, to attempt to visualize this on, on you know, on the web, you know, on HTML. So he, he oh, really? basically built a skeleton website to visualize how this would work. Oh. And I was quite impressed because he used this thing called Hilbert Curve, which is essentially a way of mapping a higher dimensional space into a lower one by iteratively defining a series of curves that eventually goes through every single point of the original space. And then he was he was able to kind of, first of all, convert the Earth into voxels, which is the 3D equivalent of pixels. So it's like Minecraft, right? So you, you kind of reduce the 3D space into little, little cubes and then run these cubes through a certain iteration of the Hilbert curve and then rearrange these, these cubes onto 2D in a specific way. And the end result was, just like Tim said, it's not quite the way the book described it. It's kind of like a messy, you know, all laid out side by side, but it's not really recognizable from the 3D form. So, yeah, I mean, Tim's right. The author here took some artistic license, and he, he, he actually even said that modern image processing software could establish this mapping and possibly reverse the 2d mapping back in the 3d form yeah but uh you know some fan of the work actually went and did this and it <laughs> did not work quite the way it uh, was described in the book now it could be it could be that the he didn't use a very high resolution you know because it's cubes and in reality it's atoms which is much smaller than than the cubes that he was able to define but uh but yeah, the this whole sequence of two dimensionalization 
was fascinating in a, I guess, an artistic way, and but also in a technical way. Uh, if if you really want to get into the the implementation of it on on our computer. Yeah, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. I I hadn't seen that either, so I have to definitely check that out. That's awesome. Be interested to see what that actually looks like, <laughs> and maybe the the show producers are also using it to. Uh, to think about how they're going to implement that when it actually comes down to it. I can see them doing it in an animation style, but like in, if they're actually going to try to visualize it in like a quote unquote realistic style, like that's going to be pretty tough to, to do in a, in a convincing way. Well, the thing is they don't have to visualize it. Well, they can also take artistic license on the screen, right? They could. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so no, no, nobody is going to bother actually diving into the math. So. <laughs> So when when things are turning into two dimensions, was it only was it only the planets and the asteroids and the sun that were being flattened, or what about the what about the space around that? Was I, I guess was that also because to me it seemed like space stayed the same, but the planets themselves what, what was being flattened is that am I, was I reading that correctly, or is there something else going on there? I took it as everything, even space was being flattened, but like there's, they couldn't see it because there's no, uh, th- there's no the energy that's released, I guess, when it's, um, when it's flattened the same way that when it, the, the sun or anything like that has, cause we don't really know what space is, right? Or I don't, um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it doesn't release like light energy the same way, but like the planets were still far apart from each other the same way they are far apart in 3d i was presuming that all space was yeah space and matter in that space was was two-dimensionalized i I could be misunderstanding it but that was my understanding yeah i think to me and i totally could be wrong this on this but to me vacuum in 3d is still fundamentally different from vacuum in 2d Mm. uh yeah so that's that's how i took it so yeah, even even vacuum space would be turned into two dimensions. Okay. Anything else that we wanted to discuss around the two-dimensionalization? Not about the two-dimensionalization itself, but there was an interesting point when when the crew on that ship was recalling a dream, a conversation he had with Ding Yi. Mm, yeah. May may he rest in peace. But um, so by ice. He's he's being a student, and they were having this discussion in the desert about why is it that physicists try to understand the world through a loss of nature that doesn't actually account for life. So this is a pretty fundamental problem, even philosophically, because we scientists they know that cells, the basic unit of life, is made of atoms and chemical compounds, extremely complex chemical compounds that is is governed by laws of physics. But then biologists and physicists, they're concerned with completely different matters. And they use, I I think they use pretty different methodologies to explain reality. And physicists have wondered, is there something fundamentally different with life that physics cannot explain? So I guess, Liu must have read about this somewhere, sometime, and he decided to incorporate this into Bai Ice's dream with Ding Yi. So I cannot answer the question because many other great thinkers have thought about this. But this 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 kind of philosophical question they 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 pop up throughout this entire trilogy, and it's one of the it's one of the great 
joys of rereading this trilogy is to notice how these questions they get raised, defined, and some somewhat answered at some places. And it's the maximalist nature of this work in that some details in this book is worth of writing a whole other book on its own. I think there's a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, there's a yeah. lot of like like sections like that could warrant their their own like you know spinoff series that would be just as interesting as as the series. Yeah, and and also like you could, I guess a, a physicist could write a book about what is life question of 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 uh, biology and physics. Yeah, I, I totally agree that like on subsequent readings of of the book and the series, like it's it's enhanced by having that the the knowledge of what happens in the rest of the series and like more critically studying it and looking for looking for these connections. And so yeah, I mean for people who are really into the series, I definitely recommend going through and reading it and critically looking for these kind of things. Um, so I actually had a question for Tim and I mean, you know, we have a lot of more context around the kind of the meanings of the fairy tales now. Like like they mentioned in the book, like the 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 two the the painting, the people putting people in the paintings and the fairy tales is like actually like very literal here <laughs> and you know that was like part of the most literal part of the fairy tales where it was not clear at the time um but does this section like kind of clear up more things and does it want to make you go back and read the fairy tales again to uh, see if you can pick up more more clues out of it well for, for me i think you know getting to be on the spoiler cast especially the one where we talked about this i think we dove really deeply into a lot of what the fairy tales could mean. So I didn't feel like, so for me, I didn't feel like I needed to go back and read anything or I learned anything new. Although um, I think that's because, because I'm on the spoiler cast. I'd, otherwise I think I yeah. might have gone back and tried touching on some things. Yeah. I think it's almost by design. That's the, you know, I mean, I kind of realized at the time that the, uh, you know, while reading them, that this was going to be a cipher for the rest of the book in some way. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's why he spends so much time with them and put, you know, so much effort into them. So I, you know, I think, yeah, the author almost expects you to go back and reread them. So yeah, I mean, it was, it would be something on a reread that I would, uh, pay cl closer attention to and it would probably be easier to do so given that you have you know you're going in armed with all of this knowledge and you could make these make these connections and uh you know understand these metaphors a bit more but yeah yeah i mean it would be an interesting part to reread um you know i'm not sure if i would like immediately go back and reread them you know i'll probably wait for a reread of the series um mm. to kind of you know maybe actually even maybe let some of the like details fade a bit um and then see you know like on re you know like after a couple of years and then like see if, you know rereading that section whether uh yeah whether they you know like like, like how would they how they would read a second time after maybe like not having the book fresh in your memory and letting you know some details fade a bit and then see how that reads again i had a tangential question i guess for frank um uh in in this part so when they were when Ding Yi was, they were talking about the sand falling and they were trying to escape it. He described it as looking like Niagara Falls. And I was wondering, is Niagara Falls uh, that globally famous or was that something they did for the translation to help American audiences make sense of what he was talking about there? I'm quite sure it was also Niagara Falls in the original. Oh, interesting. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I actually remember being taught in elementary school in China that the, that the Niagara Falls was the largest waterfall in the world in terms of volume. Hmm. So I guess, oh. you know, I guess uh, 
he expects the Chinese reader at least <laughs> to know what Niagara Falls is. I think they but, have yeah. that. Yeah, they have that unique, you know, horseshoe shape too. So I think you know, there's probably not a lot uh, of other yeah. analogs uh, in the in the world for that. So mm-hmm. it's probably still the, maybe the best uh, natural, um, you know, natural phenomenon that kind of matches what he's trying to describe. Yeah, and well, I, I guess for me, I know like four waterfalls in the world, so I'm just surprised <laughs> right. Niagara Falls makes the top four for some people. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you know, and, and again, yeah, this is just from an American context, but um, you know, it's hard to name too many other world, yeah, like famous waterfalls. Like, um, I, I mean, I know of Niagara Falls because it's it's proximity and because it's supposed to, you know, be the most. Yeah, by volume, the largest waterfall. And then I know of Angel Falls in Venezuela, which is the highest one, I think. You know, mm. But yeah, I don't know too many waterfalls aside from that. Yeah, I was going to say, me and you know four, that's three more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is It is Niagara Falls in the original. And uh, I guess, like, okay. I, I think the gist of this this plot, this part of the plot is quite clear, even if the reader doesn't know where or what Niagara, where Niagara is. Like, it's a waterfall, right? Yeah. yeah, I think he did a good job of describing what was happening. I was just surprised that Niagara Falls is what came to the Chinese author's mind. But I guess I guess Niagara Falls is more famous than I realized. Well, definitely in Canada. So, yeah, um, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But, you know, Liu is well-traveled, I think. Uh, I, I, you know, his, from his interview series, he seems to, especially about North America, he seems to have a pretty good knowledge of the trivia, uh, concerning the U S and Canada. So. Yeah. And whirlpools in Norway as well. Yeah. (laughs) That's also true. Yep. (laughs) So, uh, while, while we're on this point, you know, section with, uh, Ding Yi, um, in the stream sequence with him, um, you know, his like parting word at, you know, words as they're like falling into the, you know, whirlpool or I'm sorry, not whirlpool waterfall of sand, you know, is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ha there's no table untouched at the dinner party and there's no virgin untouched in the universe. Waha. He, he, you know, he's kind of going nuts. His brain is breaking as a physicist. It's, you know, um, it feels like in this depiction of him. And is that like, that's table untouched the dinner party or virgin untouched in the universe is that basically him you know like realizing that the laws of physics you know like said as you said the the field physics is kind of this you know search for these fundamental laws um of the universe is it him coming to the you know realization that those laws might not be so fundamental or might be fungible by other beings you know um yeah, I don't know. That's kind of what I took it as, like you know, like oh, like what's the point of physics if like physics can be changed, and that you know it is not a like essentially the universe might and its laws might not be a virgin landscape touched, you know, like untouched by other beings, but those laws have been like changed by other beings or higher. So yeah, it's like, yeah. So if we're trying to you know understand those laws that have been you know like affected by other beings or changed by them like what's the point if uh that might change or the actual fundamental laws of the universe might be something that like exists like a layer above like a whole you know uh a a layer of extra dimensional beings that we would have to like 
understand yeah. first before we even understand what governs them. So this is going to be an unsatisfying answer, but I would hold off to talking more about that until next episode. It's a really good, it's a really good point and really good catch. Okay. Um, but the, the there's yeah, let's wait until next episode to talk more about it. Sure. <laughs> um, which is yeah, you know, our final episode, and yeah, you know, it'll. I think it'll give you a good explanation. The thing I will say in context of this chapter is that, you know, right after that dream, he realizes the two dimensional state and like tells him like, get away as soon as possible. Uh, even though it's, you know, he later realizes futile because of the escape velocity needed um, is light speed. And I think he, yeah, he understands like, you know, in his mind that physics is not what they thought it was. And, you know, dinghy is kind of the representation representation in his mind of, of that. So that, that's my take on it. But it's explored a lot more in the in in the next chapter and sure and to not spoil anything <laughs> of course all right well let's move on to the last part of this episode which is all the events that happen on uh, pluto and then also the realization that they have that the lightspeed uh, research has continued and the Chongqing and NAA have a lightspeed ship in their possession. And so, Frank, I know you put in your notes around uh, some of the things around uh, Luaji's send-off here and how you really appreciated it. Yeah, it's in a respectful way. For a 200-year-old legend in, yeah. in the series, <laughs> I, I'm totally fine with how, how, it, how things ended for him. So, yeah, not much to add there. And I thought like the the little detail about him holding onto the Mona Lisa, you know, kind of that, that was a good callback there. Um, you know, his, you know, him, and it, it talked a lot about how like his mind changed over over the, the literal centuries um, of you know him being a wall facer to a sword holder to to you know to whatever he was, you know, at, toward, towards the end there. But yeah, like he turns into a very impressive character, but then he also like remembers those times, you know, literally hundreds of years ago uh, with uh, Zhang Yan and the and the Louvre. Uh, looking at the Mona Lisa. Uh, how about uh, you, you and uh, how about Tim and I mean, what do you guys think of uh, Luigi's send off here? Yeah, I thought it was good. I mean, it, it it felt like a tiny bit cliched, but not necessarily in a bad way. In that you kind of have this, yeah, like why isn't you know it, it seems to happen in a lot of more fantasy stories than sci-fi stories, but yeah, where you have this like kind of like wizened figure that's kind of explains everything at the end and he, obviously he doesn't explain everything but um but yeah he, i mean I, I think he's you know here to kind of provide that like connection to the the, the remainder of the you know the, the earlier parts of the series um yeah i thought it was a good use uh, of his character and a good send-off like um you know why why he was chosen you know um there's still this kind of odd through line with how uh, you know these these major characters get to be these major characters through, frankly, kind of bizarre program. You know, like you know the wall facer program, the sword holder program. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's it's kind of they're kind of strange, contrived. Maybe the most you know uh, unrealistic part of how of how humanity behaves in a series uh, that is you know pretty good about like representing how humanity would behave and react to these uh you know large crises in a lot of ways but uh yeah i mean there's always been these plot points that have sort of created these uh great men great fig you know like basically created the characters that we you know uh you know that are our basically window into this uh into this story but yeah um 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good send-off for his character, and it seems like how he got to 200 years, I mean, who knows? And I don't know if it ever went into, like, where he, like, has he been on this, you know, because the last time we saw him, he was already 120 years old. Has he been on here for 80 years, or, you know, just kind of... Well, they talked about how he was part of the team that did oh. the the research into Lightspeed. You know, after after the events of Halo, he was part of that team. Right. Uh, and it seemed like there's a lot more people on Pluto originally, but then when by the time uh, Chengxin and AA got there, they yeah. said, oh, all those guys left. They're trying to get out because they're dumb. I imagine he's pretty tired at this point. So like him, yeah. <laughs> him uh, you know, just kind of not sacrificing himself, but, uh, you know, just uh, letting 2D take him. Um, even though right. he had the option to leave, seems fitting for his character. Mm-hmm. Low gravity makes you live longer. That was my theory. <laughs> <laughs> but why didn't he go with them on the ship? Why? What was what was his heroic action that he wanted to stay behind? I don't think it was heroic. Again, I think he was just tired. Uh, yeah it's a, he's he, just yeah, too he's, old he's just like time eh, this is my time maybe he was curious as to what it might there was you know yeah i mean something and, and beyond he, 2d i don't know yeah i mean he knows that like that there's other people out there he talks about how the gravity sent the gravitational waves um to the bunker world a couple of years ago so he's hoping that that they can that the race can still continue if they're able to meet up with them uh, at some point and he also says, like, oh, I'm not going to, I wouldn't live long anyway if um, if I was on that ship. So, you know, he, you know, I think he, like Tim said, he's, he's tired. He knows it's his time. Um, and you know, it's a pretty interesting way to go out, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I think, like, the whole premise of the uh, Pluto uh, Museum is also interesting and how they they carve the big words into stone and like the, the Chinese characters are, like, city-sized, <laughs> they say air civilization, how they land on that. Um, there's also another uh, interesting uh, 2001 uh, reference here about the black monolith that is the entrance to the museum. The black monolith was the only protrusion above the white ground. It gave off an eerie sense of simplicity as though it was an abstraction of the real world. This looks a bit familiar, Changxin said. So I think that's a, another, another nod there to uh, 2001. And, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, the black monolith is, is right. a pretty loaded term, so... <laughs> And I thought the other part was the, the the other artistic work that is described here is about Starry Sky. And I hadn't ever seen anybody talk about string theory versus Starry, Star, Starry Sky before, but uh, Chung Xin's quote here is that Van Gogh's representation of space had left a deep impression on her. In his subconscious, space seemed to have structure. Chung Xin wasn't an expert in theoretical physics back then, but she knew that according to string theory, space, like material objects, was made of many microscopic vibrating strings. Van Gogh had painted these strings in his painting, space, like mountains, wheat fields, houses, and trees, was filled with minute vibrations. So, yeah, I don't know that any other author had would have equated string theory to Van Gogh's Starry Night, but I think that was a good detail there. And, it, yeah, it, I think... Starry Night's like another good, um, the, the, the analogy of like what the 2D painting would, uh, you know, the 2D, 2D of effication of the universe would look like. I think that was an interesting uh, comparison there. Yeah, I thought it was a little, uh, a little cliched at first because Starry Night uh, is often cited as, yeah, like, uh, this is the painting that, you know, like every college dorm room had, uh, you know, Starry <laughs> Night on it. So the choice of like, you know, uh, Starry Night and the Mona Lisa as like, you know, these representatives, you know, like 
relics of Earth civilization, you know, has felt a little cliched to me, but uh, but he gives a good justification for using Starry Night, I think. Yeah, and he also mentions the um, again the um, the Chinese painting, the the Qingming Festival, uh, the around the river at the Qingming Festival, and so I know that's that's and Frank, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's as famous as those two paintings in China. Yeah, probably the most famous classical paintings out there. Yeah. And Talia mentioned this in the Spethercast the other day, um, or the last episode, but that painting is like, only, they said only like 24 centimeters high and it's like meters long, right? <laughs> so I think that's that's really interesting because like you, if you look at the painting on, on Wikipedia or whatever, like online, it seems like just crazy detail and like, and it goes on forever. Um, and yeah, the fact that it's only like, 10 to 20 centimeters high it's just nuts well yeah the thing the, the way classical paintings work is that it's supposed to be rolled and then when you want to so so when it's stored it's it's like a roll tucked away somewhere but when you want to look at it you would have two people hold up the roll and you would unroll it slowly and then as the painting is unrolled the person who wants to look at the painting, usually somebody pretty high up, like the emperor, mm. he would just walk along and as the painting is unrolled, and the painting tells a story almost from left to right as it is unrolled. And when you're finished, you just roll it up and tuck it away again. Mm. So that's why that's why it's very long, but not, not necessarily very, very uh, wide. I think this whole Pluto section the the thing that struck me most is again how how insignificant the human history is yeah. and how short it is and we've seen this before when in in the final 10 minutes of Cheng Xin's career as a sword holder because we had a very a pretty long description of how somehow the entire Earth history was coming to an end when the droplet was attacking the gravitational waves, wave antenna. So back then it was like, okay, after, you know, after Earth was formed as a planet, we had billions of no life. And then the dinosaurs arrived, they survived for a few billion years. And then they went away. And then some more geological ages after humans appeared, and they only they have only survived 5,000 years, give or take, which is like a decimal point compared to the dinosaurs. <laughs> right. So then, okay, so we see, so this is this was this was Cheng Xin's final 10 minutes as a sword holder. And then we get the same kind of feeling here in this chapter. And I think the most representative is saying that the skulls of the Neanderthals compared to modern humans, not to us, there is a tremendous difference between the two skulls. But then by the time some somebody else discovers this tomb, the Neanderthals and modern humans, because they're only a couple thousand years apart, they would appear to be the same species. And I think that's, that, that just speaks to the power of, of time at a cosmic scale. And just how fast humans, how, how short human civilization is compared to this universe. 
yeah, the the Neanderthal skull also stuck out to me as a yeah a very good representation of like just how insignificant and you know not insignificant but like how short I guess I guess insignificant in, in the cosmic scale of things like humans are like yeah like don't even register <laughs> uh, because like our time has been has been so short. Yeah, and it's not um it, it's not a uh, you know an original point, but uh, you know this this section in the series kind of drives it home. That's why like exploring space or space exploration or just like understanding what you know the, the enormity of space, you know why it's so kind of scary to us in a lot of ways because as you know in our short evolution we've you know uh, in our short time on Earth you know we've like you know we've developed religion we've developed you know our you know our own you know uh, the human id and the human you know like the human kind of arrogance that we we think we're special in some way or at least we want to think you know we're special in some way or that like the universe like even if you don't like i think there's a human tendency even if you're not like religious in the traditional sense you know and you believe in you know a, a god as you know conceived by humans that you we still don't you know we're still really uneasy with the idea you know with the idea that space that space or the universe is completely like indifferent to our you know continued survival or existence uh -huh. um and that you know i think we want to believe even you know in our conceptions of like other uh aliens that we you know we obviously ascribe human characteristics to them or you know anthropomorphize them in some way or want to think that they have uh human ethics or concerns that we want to think that the the universe or whatever is out there you know intelligent life is out there in the universe like is interested in us and endorses our survival or wants to see us thrive as you know in some way in some way as opposed to just seeing us as a speck of the or just something that is you know that you know that should be you know wiped out and again that's not an original you know that's 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 a theme that's you know uh in a lot of especially kind of like darker themed sci-fi but uh i think this does a pretty exceptionally good job at kind of making the uh reader kind of come to that realization that yeah we are not special uh you know <laughs> and that uh everything we ever known could be yeah wiped out by either natural or unnatural phenomenon in the universe yeah just some rote job that some guy some worker in some distant civilization just throws a 2d vector at us <laughs> right yeah so the the final thing i want to talk a little bit about was the um the realization of light speed and sort of the, I think the, the fact that it's there, I think is interesting. And then the, I think another part that was also interesting was the reaction to people around the ship when they realize that they had light speed and, you know, they even get to the point where like they see that, that the halo accelerating faster than other ships and they're like, Oh, that ship must have light speed. You should crash into it. Just the, the last gasp of human react, you know, selfish reaction to, uh, you know, not being able cause like, one of, the, one of the people says, oh, I, I should be on that ship, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, and that's kind of the reason they did it in secret, right? Um, is because if they realized that light speed was a thing, then everyone would, would fight over it and, you know, maybe even destroy it. So this is like kind of the last gasp of, of humans' selfish nature, I think. Yeah, I thought the comment about crashing into them was really strange. But yeah, I guess it is human nature that if you can't have it, then nobody should have it. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's it kind of like there's a theme of um, escapism throughout the entire series, or I guess like not the entire, like the last two books, right? Of, you know, how, how escapism is, is so dangerous. And this is sort of just a implementation of that, of why it's so dangerous, because we would have this on a wider scale of people trying to escape, you know? Um, and then, yeah, like this is another, you know, I talk about the, the controversies that are part of the series, but this is sort of another thing where the, you know, Chengqin becomes a controversial character because be, given the fact that the universe is to be two-dimensionalized, um, her shutting down lightspeed uh, research not only kind of hurts, hurts the possibility of humanity being able to escape more in mass than just two people, but also shuts down the the ability to protect the solar system and as a whole by putting a black domain around it if they were able to get to the point where they had they said a thousand ships leaving the the sun simultaneously and enveloping the the world in a black domain yeah he's awfully mean you know author is awfully mean to cheng Xin a lot of ways um <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know because then you know in you know same thing with the sword holder uh you know incident um like in the moment like she seems relatable to me um you know as a as a human and he kind of gets in the, yeah this final dig at her like you know <laughs> like yeah. your your two your your two big decisions have you know essentially doomed humanity for circumstances that seemed re- that seemed reasonable to me as the reader and yeah and i don't know if you know like if this is kind of you know there, there's been you know like some discussion and criticism of him you know like being kind of sexist with his female characters um and it's you know i don't i don't know if it's a coincidence that you know this uh this character who makes uh you know these in hindsight you know uh terrible decisions that you know and who does them out of you know love or very for very emotional reasons is you know his is a female character and i don't know if you know and like all of the characters uh Ilua G, wade who kind of seemed to possess this hyper rationality who would have made these decisions that you know, would have saved human you know uh could have saved humanity uh are all male like i don't know if it's you know maybe his <laughs> maybe some sexism coming through or if maybe it's just coincidence and he just wanted to have a a female character you know like main character for the final book and he would have had a male, you know, if you had gone with a male character, would have made the same, uh, that male character might have made the same bad decisions. But, you know, given some of the criticism between, you know, like, you know, Luigi's former love interest and the way he's, you know, treated, had some female characters in the past, it's a little yeah. suspect. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely a criticism that's, that's levied against him uh, pretty uh, around the series, I think. Tim made a really good, um, oh, okay, first of all, uh, I would admit that in terms of character, I'm not the biggest fan of Cheng Xing. I, I prefer, you know, Luoji or even Wade. But in this case, I think Tim raised a really good point is that in hindsight, we know that she made a bad decision stopping light speed ships. But that's the key, hindsight. Because we, I think we only know how important light speed is when we look back when we know that there's a connection between this and the black domain. But then mm-hmm. how was she supposed to know this when when, when she stopped Wade? When, when she stopped a potential, I guess, deadly conflict between between Wade's people and the Federation. So I, I don't really blame her for this. There's, you know, she couldn't have known. 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's possible. Like you know, the, that the, in the in the course of events, right? Like she she was in favor of lightspeed research. She wanted that to go forward. That's why she even made the decision to give to Wade in the first place. Yeah. But she didn't want to have Wade kill millions of people <laughs> to achieve that goal. Uh, so yeah, I think like. And I think that our point earlier talking about the kind of diverse, the, the divergent nature of humans, uh, kind of more sentimental nature versus the the bleak reality of the dark forest is sort of in contrast here with like Chungshin versus Wade, right? Uh, they kind of, they're the kind of two personifications of those those points of view. Well, this is also in the context of, you know, weighing the different strategies between lights, you know, like, you know, the black domain bunker project and light speed uh, ships and that all we've observed and all the information that we're going on at the moment is observing how other dark forest strikes have happened. We've, we've not seen right. a two dimensional <laughs> blah, blah, you know, unf, uh, you know, flattener. We've just seen these bullets fired at um, you right. know, stars that blow them up. So the bunker project seemed like a you know it was doable it seemed like a really good option at least to me at the time you know it's like right. wow this is really <laughs> inventive this is you know use like a you know in the context of your pre-existing knowledge of how this you know how the dark force strikes work and what your current level of technology is, is capable of then it seemed like a good option so how would you necessarily make other make a different decision unless you are like really extremely motivated but you know by uh you know in order to like you know lean towards light speed ships that you know the rest of the universe is our manifest destiny and we need to explore it you know <laughs> yeah and there's always there's also that conflict of uh, escapism too i i also think it's interesting that like i i don't I didn't care for the character either. I didn't dislike her, but I think if you swapped her gender, I don't think anything in the story would really change. Or even with Wade, if you swapped Wade's gender, I don't think anything would change either. I think there's there's very few characters that that need to be the way they are. But yeah, I I, I thought the same thing as Frank that this character wasn't really my favorite, and it was interesting that they chose her to be. The, well, we haven't gotten to the end of the book yet, but to be the main character of of the of this final book in the trilogy, they do mention that she's a uh, you know a couple times about her maternal nature, right? Like you know, caring for the human race as as a mother would care for them. So I, I guess that if they did swap the gender, I, I think it's also possible to do that and have you know a, a more caring, nurturing male person as well. But it, it would have to change the story a little bit. It wouldn't be just like yeah swapping his to you know, hers yeah i mean is there a like either a conscious or subconscious like uh condemnation of you know i don't know you know what you would describe as like more female lines of thought or you know um by the author here well i mean the um the characteristics of different of, of male and female this is this isn't exactly new um th thinkers in the past have dealt with subjects quite seriously some of their ideas may may sound pretty outrageous by modern standards but uh, i was i recently learned of a book called sex and character by an 20th century austrian philosopher otto weiniger i only know him because he had an, he had influence on another tremendously influential 20th century philosopher and he has i won't get into details but he has some pretty 
outrageous and controversial ideas, to say the least. So, you know, it's possible that this this trilogy also wants to, especially the third book, also wants to slightly discuss that subject in a very subtle way. Maybe not so subtle, but just discuss the subject. And uh, the readers, I guess, I think they, they have to agree to disagree on on some of the points that this this third book is implying. Thank you very much for listening. Please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes, reading list, pronunciation guides, and all the other stuff we have on there. Please leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. So again, thank you very much, Frank, for joining us. Really appreciate your insights and all your comments and suggestions over over this, this series. It's been really great from hearing from you. And thanks for joining us. And please join us next episode for the season finale of this series as season five, episode seven, Our Star, covering part six of Death's End by Leo Sijin. <laughs>